on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's talk radio show about opera. This is Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, we induct today's birthday boy into the OBS Hall of Fame. Now, let's see if you can guess who. Here's a hint. He's an American composer. He's an American composer. He's an American composer. He's an... Okay, (laughs) enough of that. And in the two-minute drill, Zupin Mehta unloads some of his shares of Tesla stock so that the Zubin Meta Hall can have an endowment. I'm pretty sure I read that correctly. I know that if you're watching on TDO, I want you to subscribe to the full podcast to get the full show that we put out each and every week. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, smash that plus sign. It is that easy. You know what else is easy? Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore.gmail.com. You can send us a voice memo if you want to get your voice on the show. All you do is drop us a line or a voice memo. You get an OBS beer coaster. You get an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot takes. Oliver Camacho, the Australian Open is in the books. I feel like we need a special sound effect here for goat alert. Um, Rafael Nadal. Oh, that sound effect. (laughs) Two sets down, came back to take the title in five sets, beating... Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer for 21 total Grand wow. Slams. And it was, I don't know if you guys watched it. It, you know, it started at whatever, three o'clock in the morning locally and didn't finish until like 8 a.m. So if you woke up, you saw like the last couple of games. Um, I watched the whole thing uh, on delay and I just thought, okay, for sure, Rafael Nadal is going to be, he's going down, you know? I'm impressed he, you watched the whole thing. I did. I watched wow. the whole thing. And I mean, I watched it on delay, but uh, I was just, I mean, like, I'm not a huge Nadal fan, but you have to give it to him, uh, especially after being two sets down. And he's 35 years old. And I'm not kidding. He probably sweated eight pounds of water. I'm not joking. <laughs> minimal eight pounds, minimum eight pounds of water. Five hours. I mean, that's comparable to an yeah, opera Five hours and like 15 minutes or something like that. Yeah. And also, <laughs> congratulations to Ash Barty, who is the first Australian woman to win. The Australian Open on her home turf since dot dot dot. I don't know the stat, but it was a big, <laughs> a big weekend for um, a tournament that started in scandal and ended with lots of great stories. Weston on the beach. What a way to close the Australian Open. So weird. We're opening a new chapter <laughs> I don't, here in I get Chicago. It. What are you, I, was that a joke? I'm sorry. <laughs> I have no idea what Weston is doing right now. Oh, I, because it's open closed. Yeah, joke, it's an open closed like, joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, got it. You got like, it. <laughs> there's there's a new chapter. There's a new book here in Chicago. Matt Aberfluss uh, takes over as head coach of the Bears. Dallas listeners, you will know him, of course, as a uh, linebackers coach for the Cowboys for a number of years in the 2010s. Here's what strikes me about Aberfluss, and this is the relationship to opera, is that from his very first coaching job to the Bears hire was 30 years. It was 30 years of work. And if that doesn't sound like the path that an opera director has to take or other people in the opera business, 30 years of nonstop work, I do not see a, a better parallel. We will see how he does 
running the uh, insane <laughs> Verismo opera that is the Chicago Bears. We're going to get to it right now. Let's talk some opera. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic yet humble Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. All right, we're doing another Hall of Fame. And if you were uh, listening to George's hint earlier or have probably looked at the title of this episode, you might have figured it out. Uh, we're talking about one of my absolute favorite composers, Philip Glass. And wait, wait, I hear some of our listeners trying to log off right now. Don't. <laughs> my goal right now is to take this segment to get you to uh, learn how to listen to Philip Glass, learn how to appreciate him, and uh, also, while I'm at it, to get George to appreciate him as well, uh, which I know might be a little easier said than done, but I'm going to do my best. So he was born, uh, uh, when the day we're recording this, uh, January 31st, is his 85th birthday. Can you believe that? That's wild to me. Uh, he was born January 31st in 1937, and I thought today was the perfect day to induct him into the Hall of Fame. So, first and foremost... Philip Glass is a divisive composer. Republicans you... love him and Democrats hate him. That's what you mean? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, you either love Philip Glass or you love Stockhausen or you're a normal person. Those are your three options. Um, and uh, I remember hearing a lot of his music in my youth. And I was honestly with a lot of the naysayers. You know, um, his music is very repetitive, to say the least. Uh, if you break down the formula for Philip Glass, it's it's a couple of things. You've got the um, arpeggios, of course. Doodly 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 doodly. You have uh, three by two polyrhythms, which you know the da 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 next to da 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 da. The rhythms are similar. The chords are similar. It's all tonal. You're not even getting any of like that late harmonic sort of like uh, uh, nastiness that you get with uh, some of like, you know, like a, a Berg or a Schrecker or something like that. Um, and it's and it can be very repetitive, especially if you're not used to listening to him. But he is very much the most important composer uh, probably a living composer uh, at this point, and he has been for quite a while now. And so at the very least, I think you should try to give him a chance, George. Um, although I will say there's a quote by Philip Glass himself that um, I, I, it's in it was in the documentary called Glass, A Portrait of Philip in 12 Parts, which is very fun. This is a direct quote by him, in like the opening lines of the documentary. There's a lot of music in the world. You don't have to listen to mine. You have my blessing. Listen to something else. And really, I, I, I think that's really what makes Philip Glass interesting. Because if you listen to a lot of 20th century composers, your Boulezes, your Stockhausens, um, even some of like, you know, your Schurenbergs and stuff, you have like this like animosity towards your audience sometimes, right? You, you're, you're kind of, you want to compose something that's your own to the point where you begin to reject the audience. But Philip Glass is not really like that. The reason he composes like that, the arpeggios and the, and the polyrhythms, is because he genuinely 
wants to compose that way. If you read anything by him, uh, like his autobiography, or if you watch uh, interviews, it's very clear that that's just like what he likes and what he's interested in. So I, so I think it's very important if you're trying to get into Philip Glass or trying to understand Philip Glass to know a little bit of his background. Um, he was born in, in 1937. He, uh, he was uh, from a family of immigrants, I believe, a Lithuanian Jewish immigrants. As a matter of fact, his uh, his parents were uh, had a had a, a little program going where uh, Holocaust survivors and refugees would come into their house and literally just stay while they got on their feet in, in America to get away from, you know, uh, the continuing persecution in Europe, even after uh, the Holocaust. Um, and uh, his father owned a record store. Uh, and so he was brought up on a lot of like the classics and the new music of the time. We're talking late 30s, early 40s. Um, and he listened to uh, Schoenberg. Uh, he listened to the classics. He liked Sch Schubert a lot, Mozart, Bach. Uh, he was also very fond of Bartok, which I think is really interesting, um, given how he thinks of music as, you know, something that proceeds out of like a person rather than a movement. Right. And Bartok was all about the folk music and things like that. Um, he, he went to U of C, didn't he? Yeah. He did. Yeah. He not, not only that, he went to the University of Chicago starting at the age of 15. Right. Uh, yeah, I know, right? He makes you feel so bad about yourself. Uh, <laughs> he went to uh, the University of Chicago at age 15, not for music. He went for philosophy and mathematics. Uh, he graduated uh, very early. He actually did some of his first compositions then. There's actually uh, some early serialistic pieces that he composed, which is wild, um, that are bouncing around from that time period. And then he went home, having gotten a, uh, these two advanced degrees at the University of Chicago, and told his parents, actually, I think instead of stopping school, I want to go to Juilliard instead, which is... <laughs> which was apparently a bit of a, a head turn for them. He went to Juilliard. Uh, he, uh, he got first exposed to like minimalism, Steve Reich, you know, the, the pulsing sort of things. Um, uh, it, I should say before that in Chicago, he was exposed to jazz uh, and rock music, which he was very interested in because of the energy of it, the sort of unpretentiousness of it in his eyes. Um, and then he, he graduated Juilliard with flying colors. And he was like, that it wasn't quite enough. I need to go across the ocean to France, where he studies with Nadia Boulanger. Um, uh, not I mean, who didn't study with Nadia Boulanger? Well, it's true. But the interesting thing about Philip Glass is, is that he didn't actually study as a composition student. He was just, uh, he wasn't able to like join the composition program for various reasons. I think there was money problems. So he just like did like general music lessons with her. Uh, and he found out later that Nadia actually had a very high opinion of him. She actually wrote uh, at some point, un unbeknownst to him, that she thought that Philip would do something very important and very big in music one day. And she was absolutely right. So, so um, that, that's where the French influence in his, his libretti and his writing comes from. Yeah, sometimes literally, I mean, he, uh, some of his later operas, he actually wrote in French, which is interesting. Um, but there, you can, I think you can really hear it in the orchestration. There's a very, there's a distinctive sort of smoothness in Philip Glass's orchestrations, whether it's with the electronics or with like woodwinds and, uh, and brass. There's always something that feels very balanced about it, which I think is very much the French influence, um, particularly Nadia's influence, especially if you listen to the music of uh, Nadia herself and uh, her sister. Lily, uh, who I'm also a big fan of, um, but uh, but he, he keeps like picking up these pieces that will eventually become uh, his signature style, 
but he still doesn't have his final piece yet. His final piece comes when he actually visits India and Nepal. Uh, like a lot of people, you know, back in the late 50s, early 60s, there was this interest in sort of like uh, musical ideas coming out of India, especially. You even heard in pop music, like with the Beatles, um, uh, because there's certain ways of composing that are not the same as in traditional Western classical music. Uh, Philip Glass likes to tell the story of how one of his jobs in India was to uh, was to transcribe a piece of Indian classical music to Western classical instruments. And he was really, really struggling. He was just trying to like do it. And like there was a deadline and like he wasn't getting it. And the person he was working with was getting more and more frustrated with him. And eventually he's like, OK, why am I not getting this? And he realized something was wrong with the ry rhythm. So he erased the bar lines on mm. his piece of music. And from there, it all came together. The additive rhythms of uh, of uh, Indian classical music really started to make sense to him. Those two by three polyrhythms are a thing that happened a lot in uh, Indian music, especially uh, Indian classical music, I should say. And it was the final piece that like really clicked and really set him on his compositional journey. He um, has basically 15 full scale operas, but kind of there's like a core of three from which everything else came. Exactly. So let's talk about the music. So early on, uh, Philip Glass is associated with the minimalists like Steve Reich, um, which are very sort of like, dun, 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 you know, if you've heard anything by Terry Riley, for example, in C or, uh, or anything by Steve Reich, there's like, there's a pulse there. It's very tonal, which is very much a reaction against the really complicated Boulez Schoenberg stuff of the, of the, of the time. But at the same time, it wasn't really dramatic. Right. There's not a lot of happening there by design. It's minimalism. Right. So uh, so Einstein takes on the idea of creating an opera with tools that aren't really meant for an opera. His first attempt um, is, of course, Einstein on the beach, which is a, an amazing piece of music. It really is. Um, uh, and if you don't agree um, because you've heard little chunks of it, I do not blame you. I, I was in the exact same boat when I first was like hearing about Einstein on the beach. I would hear a bit of it. I would start listening to a section like, okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. The orchestration is interesting with the with the, uh, uh, the the synthesizers and stuff. And then two minutes in, you you get bored. You start like losing focus. You go away. Um, so what I actually ended up doing was uh, one day I literally made this decision. I was like, okay, every time I hear Philip Glass, there's elements I like. But I don't understand why he's so repetitive. I just don't get it. So I'm like, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to sit down and watch all the way through, start to finish, the entirety of Einstein on the Beach. <laughs> and I highly recommend that for anyone who wants to learn how to listen to Philip Glass. Because Einstein on the Beach does not have a story. It doesn't really have a libretto. There are spoken postmodern bits of poetry that don't really relate to anything that's going on. Everything that's sung is solfege or numbers. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Um, it, uh, Einstein himself does appear in the opera, but he's not singing. He's playing the violin. He's just doing those arpeggios over and over again, just grinding away. And, and, which is always fun because he's always wearing like a big Einstein wig and a little mustache. Um, and uh, this is Philip Glass at his most minimal on his largest scale. Interestingly enough, when this opera came out in the late 70s, uh, Philip Glass was living in New York City at the time. 
um, and they managed to rent out the Metropolitan Opera to do it, uh, which is, you know, wild. Um, uh, they rented out the opera and it's completely sold out every day it was it was performing. Um, and Philip Glass at that point was financially in a position where you could literally hail a taxi to take you to the Metropolitan Opera playing Einstein on the beach and have Philip Glass drive you there, <laughs> which is great. Um and, I assume uh, that this is the production that was directed by Robert Wilson. I yes, of course. Right? This mm-hmm. is yeah. this is the classic. We're going to hear a little bit of a clip of, uh, from it in a second. Um, this is from, uh, I, I will say, a lot of people argue about whether or not Einstein on the Beach is a true opera. And so I wanted to have, uh, and I had sort of the same reaction while I was listening to it. Um, but the end is, I think, the most operatic. There's the, mo- the most sense of something dramatic happening, leading you towards something. But at the same time, the repetition is extreme. And when you're listening to this part, this is the spaceship portion of the opera, really try to like immerse yourself in it, not think about anything, try not to find meaning in it, but just listen to the, the little variations in the repetitions, how it changes over time, and what that does to you emotionally. So this is from the classic abridged recording from goodness that was a bridge otherwise this podcast would be like <laughs> six hours long but i, I, I do had think do... there's a lot of merit in in immersing yourself in this piece right like absolutely you do need to go all the way with this to kind of break into philip glass's head exactly and i think that's re- something that's really interesting because i think when you get into uh it, any i think any person who listens to music um, if they have something they like, they tend to listen to that a lot and their brain starts to recognize the patterns in that style, in that genre, right? You know, you have a, if you listen to nothing but, you know, Mozart, you're going to start to hear things, um, as incorrect if they don't have those Mozart, you know, endings, you know, if, if you jump even from like Mozart to Wagner, it's a completely different world. Uh, and I find that, um, 
Philip Glass, especially the early Philip Glass, at its most at its most repetitive, really requires you to like rethink how you think about music and how you experience it and how you feel it. And that's that's something that's very exciting to me because I don't think that happens very often when you've listened to a lot of music as I have. I mean, that's my only qualification for being on this podcast, honestly. Um, and I think that there's something really, uh, really neat about Einstein of the Beach particularly. And I will say, once you listen to all the way through Einstein of the Beach, every opera that comes after Einstein is so much easier to get into because they all get better from here in terms of conventional uh, sort of uh, structure. Um, but I will say, uh, the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you you called Einstein on the Beach the first part of a trilogy, which is accurate. Um, these uh, three operas, Einstein on the Beach, Satyagraha, and Akhenaten, are uh, each uh, members of the portrait trilogy, uh, as Philip Glass calls them. They're each... Um, not really narratives, but they're, they're musicals, portraits of three important figures that represent uh, some important aspect of human thought. Einstein on the Beach is obviously Einstein. Uh, the aspect of thought is science. The second one, Satyagraha, is uh, about Gandhi primarily, although it also talks about Tolstoy, Martin Luther King. It's all the social justice aspects of, of, of society. And the third one, of course, is Akhenaten, which is, and Akhenaten was known for being the first monotheist that we know about in, in history, and therefore is a very important figure in sort of the spiritual sort of side of humanity and, and thought. Jump to Akhenaten for us first, because it's having yeah. its moment, you know, pre-pandemic at the Met, and is presumably <laughs> the most often performed opera in Egyptian yeah, almost, almost certainly. I mean, you could say the same thing about it's, it's, uh, Einstein on the Beach is the most performed opera in Solfege. But um, it, certainly Akhenaten is probably the most uh, uh, performed Egyptian opera. Not to skip over uh, over the Sanskrit in uh, Satyagraha. I love Satyagraha, but I do think that um, we have to talk about Akhenaten because it is the opera having its moment right now. Um, and I think it's really cool to listen to Akhenaten compared to Einstein on the Beach because it's almost night and day. You see a lot of the same elements. You see those arpeggios. You see the the tonality. You see a lot of the same rhythms. You even see some of the same chord progressions. But everything is is more structured. Everything is more dramatic. Every oh. it, it it feels like an opera, in in a, in the in a way you don't think is really possible with the toolkit that Philip Glass is working with, and I think that's really interesting from an artistic standpoint, especially if you listen to or watch rather the. Um, uh, the Metropolitan Opera production from a couple years ago with friends of the show, uh, Anthony Roth Costanzo and Zachary James. Um, it's uh, it, it is it was truly an impressive. It really was the most interesting piece of that year, I think, in terms of big name opera companies uh, doing uh, revivals of anything. And uh, it's got it's got a plot to it. It's in Egyptian. Um, but it's got more conventional orchestration. But uh, while Einstein on the beach slowly develops from like a molecular level, from like a single chord for 20 minutes, uh, uh, Akhenaten uh, finds those points in repetition and uh, begins to anticipate how the audience is thinking about those. So he's able to like find those moments where in, in Einstein, whenever there was like a big change, you really feel it because you've been hearing the same thing for so long. In Akhenaten, 
Philip Glass starts to find those dramatic points of change and really start to play with them to like let the audience in. You start to feel like that sort of Wagnerian directional composition composition writing where you really feel like he's leading to something and he can pull the rug out from under you or he can give you what you want. And that is the essence of good dramatic music writing, at least in the uh, operatic tradition, I think. Um, and Akhenaten is just really amazing in, in, in that way. So let's hear a little bit of a clip from, this is from the Met production. Um, you'll, I think you might hear a little bit of Zachary James. I'm not sure how I'm gonna cut this yet. You'll definitely hear Anthony Roth Costanzo and future friend of the show, Janae uh, Bridges. Um, they will be singing the love duet between Nefertiti and Akhenaten. I breathe the sweet breath which comes forth from thy mouth. I behold thy beauty every day. It is my desire that I may be rejuvenated with life through love of thee. Give me thy hands holding thy spirit that I may receive it, and may live by it. Call thou upon my name unto eternity, and it shall never fail. So from Akhenaten, basically all of his other operas sort of uh, come from there. Uh, if you listen to anything post Akhenaten, everything things start to make more sense. There's less dead languages being <laughs> being sung. Uh, you start to hear, uh, you, but you hear him sort of branching out into different areas using the tools that he learned from the trilogy of operatic writing. One of my first operas that I heard when I after I moved to Chicago. Uh, was The Perfect American uh, at Chicago Opera Theater. Um, and uh, there's something really, really, it's about Walt Disney. Uh, there's something really charming about that. There's something very, very relatable about this figure you've heard about your entire life um, that still has this really deep sort of inner life and, you know, all the external controversies surrounding uh, Philip, uh, surrounding, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Walt Disney put into an operatic form 
with these like strange sort of ritualistic elements of that Philip Glass sound. And that's even reflected in the libretto too. The, the famous part that everyone mentions in Perfect, Perfect American is the animatronic Abraham Lincoln talking to Philip Glass. And uh, I will be glad to have you know that I briefly worked for Chicago Opera Theater. And to my knowledge, the giant Abraham Lincoln marionette still sits in the office and it is terrifying if you're closing up the office and you forget about him uh, because <laughs> he's just a giant Abraham Lincoln head staring at you from across the room. And I think there's something really funny about that and really unpretentious about that, which you can actually hear in Philip Glass's music. Um, well, after uh, the trilogy, he starts doing more operas in different styles. Yeah. He, uh, in addition to the 15 main operas, he starts doing chamber operas, especially. Um, I believe, George, you did uh, In the Penal Colony at one point in time. Uh, well, this, this is the thing, man, is that you keep teasing me that you're going to convert me to Philip Glass. But I I love Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really dig Philip Glass. I did it. I did and, it, folks. And, and, and here, here's why. is To me... There's a short leap between the Baroque and Philip Glass. To me, both those musical forms on the surface, you think they're going to drive you insane. And they're like a drug. Like the more you listen <laughs> to them. Now you've offended Oliver. The, no, the, no, this is a compliment for Oliver. The more you want, you want to listen to them and the more of their intricacies and delicacies you start to hear. Mm -hmm. Look mm -hmm. at in, in the Penal Colony, the um, libretto by uh, uh, Rudolf Verlitzer, uh, uh, I think it is. Two singers, two actors, string yeah. quintet. B just a brilliant show. I was lucky to direct that. Um, Orfe, which is an adaptation of this bizarre mm, mm -hmm. French film. The music, it's like a drug, man. I AD'd on a production of that, and I have nothing but good things uh, to say about Philip Glass. That's great. Well, I, I'll, I'll take that as a victory, even if you had that opinion going in. Uh, and hopefully I've converted some of our listeners uh, as well. Uh, to sort of close up and summarize, I want to say that Philip Glass is not this impenetrable wall of sound that you think he is. You might need to invest a little bit more time into like learning how it goes, but you have to do that with any composer r r that you're not used to, right? Uh, he's done opera, he's done pop albums, he's done symphonies, he's done film scores, he's done ballets, but he always manages to surprise me at least uh, with what he's able to do dramatically with this toolkit of arpeggios and two by three polyrhythms, you know, and it and 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 it really is a lot of fun, and I I really hope that people out there will who will have doubts uh give him a chance and the rest of you already know why philip glass is my inductee into the hall of fame let's close out really quick um this is just a, a great little example one of uh, philip glass's minor operas um that i think gives a good example of how different he can sound especially when he's having fun and just composing what he wants uh, when he wants to, which is really what he's all about. Um, this is an Italian opera for children uh, called The Witches of Venice. Uh, it was written in 2007, uh, and it's to an Italian libretto. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, I believe it was commissioned for La Scala. Um, and there's so much humor and fun in this music. Uh, it's got like this really sort of grouchy sounding synthesizer uh, and everyone's amplified. It's got like all these like bubbly swamp sound effects. Well, it's like it's got Oliver witches. on a good day. 
<laughs> there is an aria called the ogre, but I won't play that for Oliver's sake. Um, it, but this is a really great example of how he can adapt his distinctive style into a dramatic situation he is not associated with it and just have fun. And uh, so let's uh, close out with that great Philip Glass classic from The Witches of Venice, Ghosts and Skeletons. next inductee into the OBS HOF, the Opera Box Score Hall of the Fame. Thank you, Weston. Again, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You want to get that full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. A little bit of sports talk before we get into the drill. The Super Bowl has been set. Uh, surprising, certainly, in the AFC, the Cincinnati Bengals beating Tobias Wright, enemy of the show's team, the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I, Serves I him right. A little place in my heart for the LA Rams. I'd, I'd like to see them go all the way. This is a Super Bowl that I might actually watch. Oh. I typically don't watch the Super Bowl. I don't find it that exciting. And it's, again, almost as long as a Philip Glass opera. True. Two-minute drill. It's not that long, but it is right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Philipland this week. More on the gods of the game. The football opera, Phil Porter, the works librettist, said, quote, The opera imagines a world in which the world's greatest ever footballers, from Pele and Maradona through to Messi and Ronaldo, exist as gods watching over the global game, end quote. Also, more than 100 fans will be recruited to perform the opera's footy fan chorus, and I also just peed my pants. <laughs> I think in, in British that's footy fan chorus. Uh, but we'll move on from that. The Metropolitan Opera hopes that the Omicron cases that uh, spiked over the past couple of months will be down and that ticket sales will be up when it returns from a planned month-long break. Attendance had dropped from 77% of the theater's capacity in mid-December to only 44% by mid-January, despite the Opera House never missing a performance during the spike. The Renata Tibaldi Foundation Museum is set to celebrate the foundation's namesake soprano throughout the entirety of 2022, her centenary anniversary year. The legendary singer who died in 2005 will be celebrated in concerts, lectures, studies, and presentations under the name <laughs> Tibaldi 100. 
<laughs> Hashtag Tabaldi 100. The Bayerische Staatsoper has announced that it will increase its seating capacity from 25% to 50%, relaxing COVID measures imposed last month. Next door, the Dutch National Opera is set to reopen after new guidelines, which allow venues to stay open until 10 p.m., also known wow. as after Weston's bedtime. So true. Conductor Zubin Mehta and his wife Nancy have donated $1 million in Tesla shares to the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino. Quote, My wife and I hope our donation will be useful, and we both hope this will inspire others, Italians and foreigners, to donate to the Maggio, and the government to give the opportunity to deduct these sums from taxes, as happens in America. That's from Zubin Mehta in an event inaugurating the theater's new Zubin Mehta Hall, just like in America. <laughs> Anna Harvey has won the 2022 Paris Opera Competition. The English mezzo-soprano took home the Pierre Verne Prize, also known as first place, after interpretation of one of Sesto's arias from La Clemenza di Tito. Previous winners of the Paris competition include Julie Lejneva and Julie Fuchs, who was a part of this year's adjudication team. And the French just can't say first prize. The Royal Opera House has <laughs> hired its first ever intimacy coordinator for its production of Handel's Theodora. Ita O'Brien will ensure that singers are comfortable during scenes involving violence and sex. Said O'Brien, quote, there's consent each and every day. You might agree one day that you're very happy to kiss lip to lip and then you develop a cold sore, so it's not suitable anymore. <laughs> In trade news, American soprano Matilda Edge has been named assistant professor of voice at Oberlin Conservatory. Edge is a member of the Ryan Opera Center Ensemble and served as a young artist with Santa Fe Opera way back in 2018. San Francisco Opera has named Teresa von Klug as its first chief operating officer, partnering with General Director Matthew Shivlock. And Opera Liège has announced that Giampaolo Bizanti is set to be the company's next music director. His tenure will kick off at the start of the 2022 season. On the disabled list, Kristina Mikitarian has canceled all her upcoming performances. The Russian soprano said, quote, For family reasons, I will I have withdrawn from four of my upcoming engagements, Gilda in Frankfurt, Juliet in San Diego, Norina in Vienna, and Gilda in New York. And Sandra Radvanovsky has canceled all performances of the Grand Teatro de Liceo's upcoming production of Queen of Spades. Exit stage right, American tenor Randolph Locke has died at the age of 67. The Texan singer enjoyed a career at a number of important opera houses, including San Francisco Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, Sarasota Opera, and Chicago Opera Theater. American Heldon tenor William Cochran has died at 78. A recipient of the prestigious Lauritz Melchior Heldon Tenor Award, he became associated primarily with Oper Frankfurt in the 70s and performed around the world in operas such as Lohengrin, Die Soldaten, Zalame, and Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. Sounds like my spa playlist. American composer and scholar Michael White has died at the age of 90. He was a faculty member at Oberlin and served as chairman of the Music Theory and Composition at, uh, Department of Juilliard until his death in January. His operas include The Metamorphosis, Through the Looking Glass, and Diary of a Madwoman. 
English tenor, conductor, and teacher Nigel Rogers has died at 86. An early music specialist, Rogers recorded a number of works by Monteverdi and other early Baroque composers, as well as founding the ensemble Chiaroscuro in 1979. And on this day, January 31st, in 1679, it was the first performance of Jean-Baptiste Lully's opera Bellerophon, Bellerophon at the Paris Opera. In 1727 <laughs> is the first performance of Handel's Admeto at the Haymarket Theater. In 1797, Franz Schubert oh, was Franz. born in Vienna. In 1882, the widely recorded Australian bass baritone bass baritone Peter Dawson was born. He made nearly 2,000 recordings. In 1910, it was the first opera broadcast live over the radio ever. The double bill of Pagliacci and Cavalleria Rusticana came from the Met. In 1921, it was the birth of actor-tenor Mario Lanza in Philadelphia. And we say happy birthday once again to Philip Glass, born in 1937, British composer George Benjamin, born this day in 1960, and the American tenor Robert Gamble, born in 1955. Also in 1955, it was the debut of Renata Tibaldi at the Met in the role of Desdemona, hashtag Tibaldi 100. <laughs> and a sad one in 1994, the Gran Teatro del Liceo burnt down in Barcelona. Ah. Uh. What a way to end it. But that is your two-minute drill. Bring me my ball of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear of clouds and Just a little bit of Australian bass baritone Peter Dawson singing Jerusalem, which was recorded in 1926. I think he might have the record if he's made nearly 2,000 recordings. He ousts Arlene Auger. <laughs> I wonder if that includes like because uh, in early recordings, uh, sometimes they would make you do because they didn't have like duplication technology mm. uh, in the very early days. So I ah. wonder if that includes like every All individual record. He might <laughs> made like 10 in a day, you know. Yeah. But man, I, I, what a what a wild career for recording in that era, especially. I yeah. love old recordings like that. Handles Admetto. So this is up in the oh, ranks. You want to do your thing about subscribe to the podcast blah 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 this no, is where you normally... the, the, the people the people they know how to <laughs> the <see>. people know <laughs> okay. all right so we're, we're talking about handles admetto so admetto. i wanted so to this talk... is as popular as Faramondo. i just wanted to talk about <laughs> admetto the first performance in 1727 because it had a noted scandal uh there were two factions in the audience one for prima donna fausta bordoni and one for francesca cuzzoni and uh, yeah, the performances were disrupted by, you know, hisses and catcalls. Uh, but it is not as bad as the story of them getting into a literal catfight on the stage, ripping each other's costumes. They had to stop oh. the opera. Oh, my God. Uh, so this is making us think that maybe we need to do a, you know, Ur TKO uh, <laughs> battle between Cuzzonia and Bordoni one of these days. Um, the original... Um, rivals. That's like know, WrestleMania. Rival divas. Grand you know. finale yeah. type of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I Thanks. love that. So that's that's coming soon. We're teasing that one day. <laughs> Sony versus Bordoni. 
on pay-per-view. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what? People just might fall for it. So Zubin Mehta, okay, shares in Tesla, Weston, I'm not a numbers guy. Talk me through this. Okay, so uh, Zubin Mehta and his wife, um, uh, they just had this lovely new hall named after them. Uh, well, after Zubin Mehta, I suppose. Uh, and, and you know, they wanted to give a donation, you know, which makes sense. It's just wild to me that they chose to give them a million dollars in Tesla shares specifically. I did not peg Zubin Mehta for an Elon Musk fanboy, but I guess I was wrong. Uh, or maybe, they, or maybe they're not fanboys. Maybe they saw the uh, the videos of the Hyperloop and were like, "We need to get rid of as many shares of of this as possible. It's going down, baby." It's the funniest thing. I mean, I I literally. In, in rehearsal, when I was reading the uh, we do rehearse uh, to all of our fans out there who think we just mess up uh, uh, because it's the first time we do it. No, we practice. We still mess up. Uh, I, I, I couldn't get through his quotes um, because it really does feel like some sort of tax scam uh, in order to do the donations that way. But, you know, I suppose uh, I oh, think God. it'll be helpful. I don't think that uh, I think that, you know, Tesla is going to go up and down for a while, but uh, I hope that it goes. The money goes to the right places looking, where uh, it needs to be. I'm looking for some of these big donations to, to start coming in in Bitcoin and non fungible tokens. <laughs> well, cryptocurrency just crashed like today. So, yeah, I'm not paying attention to the news. So I don't know about how what Tesla's value will be you know, a hundred years from now, but uh, I hope that they cash out soon and they get all of the money that's coming to them. There's a great, there's a great YouTube video. Um, my YouTube YouTuber named uh, folding ideas, which really breaks down the problems with NFTs and uh, cryptocurrency. It just came out. It's a, it went viral a couple days ago and I would recommend uh, Zubin Mehta. If you're listening, just, just check on that. Cause I feel like you might need uh, to get that takedown. I want to see Philip Glass's opera on NFTs. <laughs> Another quick head before we go to the next topic. Um, Matilda edge being named as a, adjunct professor or associate professor i forget what the title is um at I'm oberlin associate, i think yeah i mean oberlin is a major conservatory so congratulations yeah. to her um you had a little joke about her being a young artist as long ago as 2018 and in a way <laughs> she is like achieving the dream at the start of her career i mean all of us who we're chasing after seeing careers wanted to like have like a performance career and then have some cushy university job that they could like settle into at where they could be centrally yeah, located exactly. etc. I mean like she's centrally not centrally located yet, but... dude okay well, well I mean she, she has to live in Oberlin Ohio home, you know? okay well anyway <laughs> the point being is that she's still Mike I would consider her still be like a rising artist but yeah. to already have that secured is pretty impressive I mean, it's in, okay. It's centrally located because it's in the center of Ohio. I mean, it's about as Midwest as you can get. You know, anyway, that's, we'll, that's I'm going to try to get Matilda on the show so we can talk about it. Soon. I just yeah. I, I, that would be awesome. I just hate Ohio for reasons that all the other Wolverine <laughs> fans out there will know. Huge fan of Katie Mitchell. Katie Mitchell, of course, the British director. She's directing Handel's Theodora at the Royal Opera House. This production has already been in the news a few weeks ago in the Royal Opera House sent to its ticket holders a warning saying that I believe it was children under 16 were either not going to be admitted or have to be admitted with a parent or guardian. So essentially saying like this opera is rated R. 
And there was a <laughs> there was a kerfuffle in the press about censorship, which obviously that makes no sense because no one has a problem with our ratings on on films. But it does tell us though that like this is going to be a explicit, although perhaps not unjustified production and kudos to the royal opera house for getting their act together and hiring for the first time ever an intimacy coach intimacy coordinator is the phrase that perhaps they they use in england it's a thing okay intimacy coordinators are now a thing and the reason Mm -hmm. for that and they're valued members of production teams is that up to this point is that the insensitivities and the uncomfortableness was simply whitewashed over by a whole bunch of other typically straight men in powers of position in these opera houses that it did not bother. Absolutely. And finally, we are taking the sponge to the glass and we are finally starting to clean this up. And I find it surprising that the Royal Opera House actually took this long. To get to this point, right? This is this has been happening in the U.S. for probably not ten years, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say at least five years. And yeah, yes, I, 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 I really I want to see this production. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I think this is one of those because obviously intimacy directors, intimacy coordinators did exist, have existed for a while. Um, but I, I didn't start noticing them in sort of the mainstream until uh, until sort of the Me Too movement started happening when you started to have a lot of, you know, people in the industry, uh, you know, both in theater and in opera, you know, start to, you know, you realize that sometimes the people in charge of those scenes should not be in charge of anything specifically sexual. Uh, but in this case, the violence, too, I think is very it's it's imperative because you have to remember that actors, singers, they're doing a job, you know, um, it's a very strange job where you might be asked to kiss your colleague every once in a while, but it's imperative that you feel safe doing it. And I, I love the quote uh, that, that she used because it's not just, you know, safety in terms of like, I, I feel I'm not sure if I'm psychologically ready for this, but also like just having someone to stand up for you and say like, hey, I was just sick. I don't, I don't want to give my co-star a cold sore just for a, just for a kiss. Is there another way we can do this? The, the having someone who is an intermediary between the director and the cast to make sure that both are getting enough of what they want um, and using that as a creative challenge um, in order to create the best piece of art possible, a more democratic piece of art is really, really exciting. And every time I hear about a new program, I hope uh, eventually they hire on a permanent um, uh, intimacy coordinator um, because well, I think it, that'd be amazing. It should be a, a, a permanent staff position at an opera house of that size. Absolutely, and, and absolutely. Caliber. Certainly in this country, it is you know more of a, a case-by-case basis, but there is training in that field. There is accreditation. Yes. Um, in that field, and it is it is absolutely a thing to be supported. Before we drop up the reel, let's just get into the numbers really quickly, crunch the numbers here on the Met ticket sales. So first of all, they are in a intentional pause right now. This is something that was planned. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't know what their season was going to be like, but for the first time, they're just going dark. For the month of February. Well, yeah. obviously they got it right. I mean, you yeah. know, it was a good, it was a good idea. Opera houses and theater um, companies across the country are saying we're not performing until March. Yeah, I, I've, it's been interesting how in the U.S. we have been able to carry on and not really cancel stuff. I, I think that just goes to show how invested 
companies are in making sure you know that the show goes on because there's so much money at stake whereas in right places like the netherlands or germany whatever it's like well more of a wasn't money to begin with <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right i think it also shows the strength of those governments in europe and their response to the pandemic to say tough you know we're, we're just going to make these policies and shut it down True. to great outcry from those artists who want to create i get that i'm not going to push that to one side mm-hmm. uh but here we are 44 percent of lincoln center filled in the month of, of, January. of the metropolitan opera house the lincoln center lincoln center is a very big place <laughs> I, I, it's, it's true it's a, it's a whole quadrangle yeah. of, of spaces yeah. but i use it as a, as a shorthand for the met 44 percent. if you've been in that house you can imagine uh how empty that would it be. would feel very empty in that yeah. huge huge house i mean i really hope this works out for them i hope they can uh come back safely with more ticket holders coming in i know i personally have held off on getting some tickets for things over the past month because of the omicron spike but things seem to be starting to settle maybe not yeah, all think, the way i think by march we're gonna be a little bit more confident about yeah exactly going and out, i so. i think that's that the met made the best call they looked at the data they looked at you know the the spikes last winter and were like we're just not going to deal with that we'll see what happens you know and uh it seems to be working out for them so far. They made their best call. We're going to make our good calls and our bad calls as we wrap up the show. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are and however you're listening. Good call, bad call is going to take you home tonight. We're going to kick it off with our creative consultant, Oliver Camacho. I just wanted to shout out to uh, baritone Justin Austin, who is a singer that I didn't know about, uh, but a um, friend of the show, Will Liverman, uh, introduced me to his singing. And uh, he is making his uh, debut singing uh, Intimate Apparel, the uh, Ricky mm. and Gordon show. Uh, he's been getting great reviews, actually, so far. And uh, he was just profiled in Opera News Magazine. So good on him. So keep your eye out for baritone Justin Austin. Weston Williams. Well, I want, I want to do a little hashtag TBT, uh, not to be confused with hashtag Tibaldi100, uh, hashtag TBD to, uh, TBT to uh, Philip Glass retweeting that lovely video of the, um, of the video game character Toad with long legs dancing to his music. He, Philip Glass his official account literally retweeted that about a year and a half ago. And I have not been able to stop thinking about it since. I've been spending a lot of time thinking and reading about improv comedy. And if you're here in Chicago, you might know the improvisers Fuzzy and Erica. They have done more improv shows than I have had hot dinners. And I had a chance to have dinner with them the other night and to talk about improv and what makes improv great and how to read about it and think about it and what a night it was. And there were no audience suggestions, which was the only strange thing about it. Hey, that's it. You're really trying to widen the net of opera box score, George. Good job. (laughs) Improv opera is next on the list. Yeah. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell normwaddell.com on facebook you search for opera box score on twitter and instagram it's at opera box score help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts again if you're watching on tdo make sure you subscribe to the podcast stitcher spotify 
and Apple Podcasts. You just smash the plus sign. Email us those hot takes. Send us that voice memo, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get that OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you get in the queue to be considered for the footy fan chorus. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week. We get you ready for the Super Bowl with national anthem singer Scott Ramsey. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more charitable deductions. Join us.